Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. I'm grateful for a few weeks off that the elders gave me and certainly grateful for the gifted men the Lord's given us as a church to be able to fill the pulpit. But excited to come back here to, uh, to the gospel of Matthew. And uh, as we come back uh, returning where we left off a few weeks ago to this great gospel that was written by a Jew to his fellow Jews primarily even before it was eventually circulated and distributed throughout all the world to even the Gentiles. But the primary reason Matthew wrote this was to present Jesus to his own people as their true Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise to bring about a king in the line of David. And along the way, he does that by various means, particularly by showing how Jesus fulfills so many of the promises of the Old Testament, so many of the prophecies. In fact, there are, as you study the book, 14 key passages as you move throughout Matthew that cite as explicitly how Jesus uh, fulfills prophecy, most of them with the same sort of introductory formula. This was to fulfill the word spoken by the Lord through the prophet or something similar to that. Our focus this morning is still in the opening chapters of this book, particularly chapters 1 and 2, where we find five of these 14 passages, all grouped together around the time or around the issue of Jesus' childhood. Now, these passages are very, uh, I guess you might say, structured and appear to have a lot of uh, a, a lot of purpose, a lot of intention behind them by the Gospel of Matthew. Not every gospel records events from Jesus' childhood. Each of them have their own reasons for why they write. But but Matthew appears to be writing for the purpose of of a sort of apologetic or defense. He seems to be interested in answering the unspoken questions about Jesus' origins, perhaps some criticism, because. Jesus was thought of as being from Nazareth. In fact, he's often referred to in the scriptures as Jesus of Nazareth. You may remember Nathaniel in John chapter 1 questioned, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so this was the kind of, this was the kind of questions that would have been on people's minds. This was, in fact, the very debate that broke out in John chapter 7, verse 40, when you hear the attitude of the multitudes, the attitudes of the people, it says in John seven forty, when they heard these words, some of them were saying, this is really the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. But someone said, is the Christ to come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them want to arrested, uh, arrest him. Others were afraid to lay hands on him. So there are all kinds of questions that swirled around Jesus regarding his origins, where he came from. A number of people questioning whether or not he could really be the Messiah simply because of his place of origin or his supposed place of origin. And so Matthew writes his whole gospel partly to answer those questions, to explain those beginnings, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, and then explaining how he eventually came to be from Nazareth. 
And Matthew shows us how God in His providence moved Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt and eventually to Nazareth through a series of circumstances and angelic visits and, and all of those things, all of it pointing to God's sovereignty, orchestrating all of these events, not just in the, not just in the contemporary uh, circumstances, but more importantly, in alignment with His Word in accordance with the Holy Scripture, in fulfillment of everything he said about about Jesus. Now, it's this final point, as we'll see this morning, that has created a number of difficulties for modern-day readers as they read Matthew's gospel, a, a lot of people struggling with whether or not Matthew has accomplished what he set out to do, whether or not he has, he has actually used the Scripture to demonstrate what he says He's demonstrating. Now, before we get into that, let me just read to you the passage that's going to take our focus this morning in uh, verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2, going down through verse 15. Matthew says this, now, when they had departed, that is when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and he said, rise, take the child and his mother And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now these uh, short and relatively straightforward Verses give an account of how Jesus ended up in Egypt at the beginning of his life. And Matthew is clearly striving to make the point that all of this was a part of God's sovereign plan. In fact, his family's escape to Egypt when he was a baby was actually proof of his Messiahship. That's why he includes it. That's why he wants us to know this. It's proof that God had called him, that God cared for him in a special way, is proof that he fulfills everything God had said about the Messiah. And as we look at the passage in detail, we can take note, I think, of two key ways that Jesus' escape to Egypt, orchestrated by God's sovereign plan, accomplished two incredible purposes that prove his Messiahship, two purposes in God's providence that proved the Messiahship of Jesus through his escape to Egypt. The first one is simply in the sort of historical details recorded for us in verses 13 and 14, where Jesus found protection from Herod in Egypt. Jesus found protection from Herod in Egypt. Matthew tells us that all of this happened as the Magi were departing. And the idea is that this was in close proximity, maybe the same night, but certainly, certainly within a very short period of time. It was as they were leaving that Joseph receives another angelic visit. This, you may remember, is not the first time Joseph has been visited by an angel. He was visited, we're told, back in chapter 1, verse 20, when he first heard about Christ being in the womb of Mary, before they were ever betrothed, I mean, before they were ever wedded, while they were still betrothed, he was, he, he was told some way or another, I believe by Mary her, herself, he was told that Mary was pregnant. And he drew all the 
sort of conclusions that you might imagine for someone who is engaged to a, a lady but hasn't yet come together. He drew all kinds of conclusions and was going to sort of call an end to the relationship, to the betrothal, to the marriage, until he was visited by an angel who told him that the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So now here is a second visit by the angel. And down in verse 19, we'll see that Joseph is in fact visited a third time by an angel when he's down in Egypt. But here we find the words, very similar to what he says down in verse 20, by the way, but we find here in verse 13, these words, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of, uh, of Egypt for those who sought the child's life. I'm sorry, I'm, I was actually trying to read a conflation of these two verses that I wrote in my notes. Verse 13, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I, t- I tell you for the child is, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Now you take that and you take what's down in verse 19 and 20 and he says something very similar there and you even take the angelic visit from verse uh, uh, um, 20 of chapter 1 and all of this sort of binds all of these events together as Matthew reports them, giving you the overall impression that God is directing, he's sovereign in directing all of these events. But the point here in verse 13 is certainly that God is at work protecting in a special way this child. Because the angel says, Herod's about to search for him. The imminent danger is there. He wants to destroy them. And all we have been told really up to this point is that Herod just had a lot of questions for the Magi when they visited him. He wanted, he wanted information. He wanted them to report back to him when they found the child. We don't really know, at least from the text of Matthew, what his motives were But now it's explicit. He wants to destroy the baby. And so the angel tells Joseph to flee. The word is fugo. We get our word fugitive from this. He's to flee. And basically, he's going to begin his life, Joseph and and Mary and the baby. He is going to begin his life and they are going to be along with him refugees, fugitives, at the very beginning, he's going to flee to Egypt and take up residence in some sort of refugee encampment. Now, we're told that there were a large number of Jews in Egypt already. It had been that way for about 300 years, ever since Israel had come under the rule of, of Greeks who were ruling in Egypt in the uh, late 4th and and in the third century BC, there had, uh, they had established a large population, we're told by the time you get to the first century, a million Jews, one-third of the population of Alexandria, we're told, were Jews. And so it made sense for Joseph to flee down to Egypt. It was a place that would provide a lot of support, a, a strong Jewish community, a welcoming community. He could probably find temporary work. And most importantly, it would have been outside the jurisdiction of, of Herod and it would have been safe. And we're not told how long they stayed there. Just in verse 15, that they remained there until the death of Herod the Great, which is in 1 BC. He died uh, before the Passover in 1, 1 B.C., Jesus was probably born in late 2 B.C., and, and we can estimate 
that Jesus was probably down in Egypt with his family then, probably until Herod's death six months or a year later. But all we really are told now is that he's just supposed to go there and wait. He's to wait until he gets word. He's to wait until the angel tells him. He's to wait until he has another visit, until he's called back to come back to Israel. And so he does it. He takes his family down to Egypt with no real definitive answer on when they'll be able to return. Matthew, uh, when he does this, he ultimately is doing it to refer to this call that they're going to receive to come back. And this is why he's told to wait until he's told. He's waiting until he's called. This is where Matthew's aiming. Now, at this point, Matthew just wants us to understand that God was sending this family down to Egypt in order to protect them from Herod's brutal jealousy. That was ostensibly on the front end, the whole purpose of the event. It, it was evidence of God's special concern for this baby. They would, they would be sent angelic messages. They would be given special insight about Herod and his plans and his purposes. God would direct their steps and ensure that they were protected. Obviously, God could have done this by any number of means. I mean, he could have done this by just simply eliminating the threat who was Herod. He could have done this by, by sovereignly confusing their troops so that they couldn't find the baby Jesus. He could have done this by never even have sending the Magi there to begin with. There's all kinds of ways God could have protected this baby. He could have sent them right into the heart of Jerusalem and had them protected. He could have sent them back to Nazareth and had them protected. All of that stuff certainly is possible. But it isn't what God did. God was working, we might say, through rather ordinary means. It looked at least rather ordinary. It looked, in fact, probably from Joseph's perspective, it might have felt a little bit chaotic. It might have felt as if God wasn't in control. It probably felt to him uh, somewhat harrowing. In fact, we're told that he left in the middle of the night. This wasn't some sort of casual withdrawal. There was a sense of urgency to it. There was a real sense of danger. And yet, even though he was, he was feeling the pressure of all of of what life was throwing at them at that point, even though he was feeling all of the sense of danger, he was the whole time completely under the protection of God, which is so often the way it happens, right? God's providence is at work. God's protection is at work, sometimes even over us. He might be directing us through what appear to be just sort of the ordinary plans and provisions of mankind, maybe even sometimes uh, people find themselves as refugees, fugitives, fleeing their own country, living in camps and tents and all sorts of things, while at the very time they're right under the protection of God. Well, that's where Jesus was. He and his family withdraw 75, 100 miles across the desert excuse me, with a newborn baby showing up in Alexandria, no doubt struggling to find housing and food and a job and all of those things, and yet right where 
God wanted them. It all looked very ordinary, very natural, but the point is it was not. It was God's providential work through very natural means bringing about something incredibly profound and supernatural. Which brings us to our second point, the second great purpose that was at work through God's sovereign providence here, which was to bring about the proof of his Messiahship. The escape to Egypt was just because God's work, or I should say it wasn't just because he was trying to protect him, it was also because he was trying to fulfill a certain pattern that matched Israel's history. God's sovereignty here was taking Jesus to Egypt to fulfill a pattern from history. This is what we hear Matthew saying in verse 15. He tells us that Jesus and his family remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now there's no shortage of controversy surrounding that verse. In fact, some people consider it one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture to understand, perhaps one of the toughest two or three verses in Scripture to explain. There's a lot of questions about what exactly Matthew is doing with the Old Testament here. People have generally struggled in two areas. First of all, the specific verse that Matthew quotes out of Hosea is clearly a reference to Israel's past history in the Exodus, but Matthew is using it as a, uh, Matthew, I should say, is claiming that it's a prophecy of the future. So Hosea makes a reference to the past, and Matthew is suggesting that it's fulfilled by something in the future. Secondly, the verse in Hosea 11.1 1, refers to the entire nation of Israel, but Matthew applies it to the individual, Jesus Christ. And people have struggled with this. In fact, some people have even added a third objection, which is the fact that Matthew doesn't narrate the return of Jesus from Egypt until you get down to verse 19. And so they say that the verse would be more appropriately used after uh, Matthew 2, 19, 20, and 21, but Matthew, as we said already, already, Matthew very clearly points in verse 13 that Joseph is to remain in Egypt until he hears the word of the angel, until the angel tells him to leave, or until the angel calls him out of Egypt. So it's not, I would say, inappropriate for Matthew to use the verse at this point. And he does eventually come out of Egypt. But when he gets to that point down in verses 19 and 21, his focus then turns to Nazareth. He wants to explain Nazareth. And maybe for literary reasons, Matthew didn't want to confuse the, 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 the locations and the fulfillment of prophecy. But I don't think personally the placement of the uh, prophecy is so much of an issue. The main problems are the application of this verse to Jesus as an individual And more importantly, the fact that in the Old Testament, it doesn't appear to be speaking about something in the future, but something in the past. But so much of the understanding, or should say misunderstanding, really comes from just taking note of how Matthew and other New Testament writers use the word fulfill. This is critical. This is critical not only for this passage, but really for the rest of our study of the book of Matthew. 
We tend to think of fulfillment in terms of prediction regarding details. In other words, we think of, of uh, prediction and, and uh, fulfillment. And there are certainly times when the Old Testament predicts details of Jesus' life with amazing specificity and amazing clarity. And even as we saw a few weeks ago when it predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that detail was fulfilled precisely as it's said in the Old Testament. But that is by no means the only way that the New Testament uses the word fulfill. It's not even the only way that Matthew uses the word fulfill, meaning the prediction about the details of Jesus' life. In fact, that may not even be the primary way that the word is used in the New Testament. The word fulfill is the Greek word plerao. It's the Greek word plerao, and it basically means to fill something up. It can be used to talk about filling containers with liquid. It can be talked about, it used to talk about filling people with goodness and knowledge, like Romans 15, 14. He talks about people being filled with, with goodness and knowledge, or even be filled with the Holy Spirit, as Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 5. It can mean to complete or even summarize something. It talks about periods of time coming to their end or, or time even passing or being completed in that way. Or it can talk about bringing something to completion that had already been begun. Like Romans fifteen nineteen, when Paul says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obviously, he's not talking about a prediction that brought about was brought about in, in details or, or fulfilled in that way. Paul is speaking about the completion of something he began, a ministry of preaching that he began in Illyricum and was brought to completion all the way around, uh, he says, I'm sorry, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Or... He tells the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, we always pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. May God bring to completion those things that you resolved related to good living, related to sanctified and holy and godly living. So the word plerao can speak about bringing all kinds of things to their desired end. Or even other nuances that we could cite within the meaning of that word. So every time you come to the word, you have to decide which of this range of meanings is it really talking about. Is it talking about a prediction that's fulfilled in certain details? Or is it talking about something that's begun and brought to completion? Or is it talking about a summary of something? Is it talking about the filling up of something? And maybe the best place to really begin our thinking on this is by just taking note of other passages which talk about the Old Testament being fulfilled in some way. I think one of the best places is actually over in Galatians chapter 5, the book of Galatians chapter 5 verse 14, where Paul says, Galatians five fourteen. The whole law, that is the Old Testament law, is fulfilled 
in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's interesting because we don't normally think about Old Testament law as having a function of prediction. It's not predictive. We don't think about the Old Testament passages, uh, 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 the legal passages in the Old Testament, predicting details in the future. It's not prophetic in that sense of the word. The Old Testament law doesn't necessarily say anything about the future, and yet Paul speaks about the law as being fulfilled. Obviously, he's not talking about prediction and fulfillment. He's using fulfilled in some other way. In fact, Jesus uses very similar language in Matthew 5, 17. He says it this way, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There, Jesus obviously includes the prophets, but his main focus is the law. In fact, throughout the rest of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his focus is primarily on teaching the meaning of the law. So we conclude from uh, Matthew 5, 17 that the meaning of fulfill is not talking about prediction, about future details that come to pass. Jesus, in fact, is contrasting fulfillment with abolishment. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So the meaning in Matthew 5.17 is something we might say like establish or even demonstrate. I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to uphold it. I came to establish it. I came to demonstrate what it really is. In fact, he goes on in verse 18, for, the, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Well, here in Galatians 5.14, we come to a similar, similar conclusion in how Paul uses the word fulfilled. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is demonstrated. It is demonstrated in that kind of love. Or we might even say in some cases it's summarized in that kind of love. Or another way we might say it is the law pointed people in the direction of love. The law pointed people in the direction of love. And so when Paul says that love fulfills the law, he's saying that you have found the end to which all of the law was pointing, or you found the whole purpose of the law. You've completed the work that was intended to be done by the law. All those things, I think, would stand the test of context. Now, as you read through the rest of the New Testament, you can find, in fact, that the New Testament speaks about the Old Testament being fulfilled over and over again, the Old Testament being fulfilled in this kind of a way. For example, the writer of Hebrews speaks about the Old Testament sacrificial system or the Levitical priesthood in some way pointing towards Christ. In some way, Christ completes or Christ fulfills or Christ uh, um, um, demonstrates the Old Testament sacrificial system or the Old Testament Levitical system. Or even in one place, he speaks about, the writer of Hebrews speaks about this Old Testament character Melchizedek. 
being in some way a pointer to Christ and Christ in some way being a fulfillment of this story of Melchizedek. So, when we come to Matthew, we would expect him to use this word fulfilled in a similar way or to have, we might say, a similar view of the Old Testament as Paul or the writer of Hebrews or any of the other New Testament writers. In other words, he's not just interested in passages that have future predictions about details in the life of the Messiah, but he's interested in how the entire Old Testament begins a work that is completed in Christ. Or how Christ might even somehow summarize something or how the the life of Christ might even demonstrate something. Now, go back with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. It's interesting right here in Matthew chapter 2 as we will look at in a couple of weeks down in verse 23, Matthew even tells us this that what was spoken by the prophets was fulfilled when Jesus was called a Nazarene. Now, this is the interesting thing about Matthew 2.23. There is no specific scripture that says that. There's no specific scripture that says Jesus will be called a Nazarene. As a matter of fact, you'll notice that Matthew is not even speaking about a single scripture. He says this was what was spoken by the mouth of prophets, plural. So what we come to understand is when Matthew uses the word fulfill, he may not be talking about future predictions and he may not even be talking about a single passage of scripture. He might be talking about a whole collection of prophets. He might be talking about a whole collective message from the Old Testament. Now, as we approach this, Matthew's use of the word fulfill, we have to set aside then anything that might be our initial ideas of how prediction and fulfillment might happen to work. And we have to ask ourselves, is Matthew talking about something being fulfilled in terms of details or is he talking about something being summarized or something being completed or something even being demonstrated through the life of Christ when you're asking those questions I think you're ready to come back and understand Matthew 2:15. it can help us here as we look at what Matthew is saying about Hosea and and really in many other places where he uses these fulfillment formulas throughout his gospel We'll see a number of different places where Matthew says this, but in this particular passage, we can take note, and I think it's helpful to note, that what Matthew taps into is not just a particular verse, but it's really an entire sweeping view of the Old Testament. Matthew is quoting from Hosea, who is himself or, or, or did himself write a future-oriented book. He, he is not simply a, a prophet looking back at history. He's very much a prophet talking about the future. He makes reference to the past exodus out of Egypt, but only as reference to a pattern that he says God is going to fulfill or God is going to follow again in the future. There's going to be a kind of exodus, a kind of future redemption. And 
Hosea uses the first exodus to demonstrate not only God's power, but also God's love and God's commitment to bring about this new exodus. Now, to show you that, turn with me, if you will, back to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. And we want to look at the way that Hosea does this. Remember, if you know anything about this book, remember Hosea is a kind of love story. It's a very unexpected love story. The whole book is constructed as an analogy between the love of the prophet Hosea for his wife named Gomer and God's love for the nation Israel. And in the opening chapters, we're told of Hosea marrying this woman named Gomer, and then she goes off into a life of prostitution. Hosea actually goes to the brothel where she was working, and he takes her and brings her back to his own home, even after she has, she has plied her trade in prostitution. He takes her again as his wife, and it becomes a story of staggering, deep, unwavering love. It's actually out of this image of Hosea's love for Gomer that God shares the message of his profound love for Israel. And he basically spends the rest of the book talking about how just as Hosea took Gomer back, he intends to take Israel back. He tells the story of how God originally took Israel as his bride, but then she left him to go after a life of idolatry But God is going to take her back because of his profound love for Israel. Hosea, by the way, wrote all these prophecies right on the eve of Israel and their demise, their fall into Assyrian rule and Assyrian captivity. And it was in light of that pending captivity when people questioned the love love of the Lord. It was in light of all of that that the Lord wanted to give Israel assurance that he while he was going to destroy them, if you will, in that generation, he wasn't going to make a complete end of Israel. He was going to take her back, just like Hosea took Gomer back after all her adulteries. God was going to take Israel back. And so the book is full of repeated references to God's love for Israel. It begins in earnest in chapter 1 with the story of Gomer giving birth to two children, and God tells Hosea to name them. The first is to be named No Mercy. That's her name, No Mercy. The second child is to be called Not My People. So, so Hosea's children, in a sense, are prophetic. Their names are prophetic. He's making a declaration that with that present generation, he was not going to be merciful. And with that present generation, he was not considering them his people. An illustration of how God was going to reject them. But I want you to notice in chapter 1 of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1 verse 10. He writes, Yet the number of children, a number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where Where it was said, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. 
and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. In other words, the the northern tribe and the southern tribe that have been split for hundreds of years, they will be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now, this is the point of the whole book. This is the point of the whole message of Hosea. God was rejecting the present generation. They were not his people. They would not receive mercy, but he was going to do a work in the future whereby Israel would again become his people. And God reiterates the promise in the most profound way in chapter 2, in verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. In other words, just like Gomer, she's gone after other gods, other lovers. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her and I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. And I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So you can hear there already a comparison to the original way in which God called Israel out of Egypt. He's picturing himself like starting all over, taking Israel once again out to the wilderness, just like he did at the beginning. Taking Israel, he says, out of Egypt, just like he did at the beginning, and reestablishing this whole pattern of love that he originally showed to her at the beginning. You can hear it again in chapter 8. We don't have time to go through the whole book, but just hitting some of these highlights. Chapter 8, verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they've become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws... By ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord doesn't accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send fire upon his cities, and it will devour the strongholds. Again, in chapter 9, verse 1, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaken your God. You've loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. uh, The threshing floor and the wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim 
shall return to Egypt. They shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Now you begin to hear this talk about Israel returning to Egypt, and not just Egypt, but also Assyria. In other words, this is going to be a broad-ranging exile. Now it's in light of all this that we can begin to understand Isaiah, excuse me, Hosea chapter 11. It begins, once again, with a reflection of God's original love for Israel that caused Him to bring them out of Egypt and constitute them as a nation. He says in verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So you have this reflection of how God called Israel originally, constituted Israel originally as a nation, how he set his affection on them and called them out of Egypt. But then, beginning in verses 2, throughout verse 9, He recounts the present state of Israel. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. So here we find out that this whole discussion about returning to Egypt is metaphorical in a sense. Because really when he's talking about Egypt, he's talking about Assyria. He says they have refused because they've refused to return to me. That's why this is going to happen. Verse 6, the sword shall ravage their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. Although they called out to the Most High, they shall not, uh, he shall not raise them up at all. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? These were the, these were the cities alongside Sodom and Gomorrah, which were consumed by simply being in close proximity to them. He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. And then in verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, and like a doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So finally, we have this promise of restoration. So you're catching the message, right? You're understanding what Hosea is saying all the way through this. He's talking about Israel in their unfaithfulness during his day, and what he's doing is he's reminding them. God set his love on you back in the days of the Exodus. God set his love on you back in the days when he redeemed you. And he's going to punish you for your current flagrant sin. But he's going to do another work. Just like the work he did at the beginning. 
when he's going to bring you back because of the same love, because of the same commitment, because of the same affection, he's going to bring you back just like he did at the beginning. And he caps the whole book that over in chapter 14 with another promise of restoration. Verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls and vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. They shall blossom like the lily. They shall take root like trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They will, they will return and dwell beneath my shadow. They, they shall flourish like grain. They will blossom like the vine. Their fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. So here you have the message of Hosea. He is telling Israel that God is going to decimate them, but he's not going to finish them. But just like he constituted them at one point, he's going to reconstitute them. But the second time, not like the first. The second time, they will be a people who follow their God. They will be a people whose sins are forgiven. They will be a people who know their God. They will be a people who follow his ways. Now, Hosea is not the only prophet by any stretch who has this message. In fact, most of the prophets have some form of promise just like this. And many of them, in fact, use the first exodus as a paradigm of how God was going to do this work. For example, Isaiah eleven eleven. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Isaiah eleven sixteen, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, just as there was for Israel when he brought them up from the land of Egypt. Jeremiah 6, 14, therefore behold the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up his people out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up his people out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their forefathers. Jeremiah 23, verse 7 Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where they had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. This, in fact, wasn't even something that was dreamt up by the prophets. All they were doing was simply expounding and applying, or we might even say extending, the original message that God gave to Moses 
during the original Exodus. You may remember this in Deuteronomy 30. God had recounted how he had loved Israel and how they were going to reject him anyway. And after giving all of that and talking about all the curses and all the difficulties that was going to bring in their nation, he tells them in Deuteronomy 30 verse 1, and when all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God and you and your children and obey his voice and all that I command you with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you back into the land that your fathers possessed so that you may possess it. And he will make you a prosperous, uh, make you more prosperous and more numerous than your forefathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your heart. Excuse me, with all your heart, with all your soul so that you may live. So here you have it. I mean, this is from the very beginning. This is, this is woven into the fabric of the message of the Old Testament. The message from the very beginning was God is going to constitute Israel one time, but they're going to be flagrantly disobedient. And so God will scatter them all over the world and then he will regather them and reconstitute them a second time. But the second time they will have obedient hearts. It's fundamental to our understanding of the Old Testament, fundamental to the understanding of Hosea, fundamental to the understanding that God is going to lovingly take Israel back even when they didn't deserve it. He's going to reconstitute them as a believing nation. Now, when we come back to Matthew chapter 2, there, as we have seen, there are a number of places that Matthew could have quoted to grab hold of this kind of message. But when he quotes from Hosea 11, verse 1, he is tapping into a message that would have been all too familiar to students of the Old Testament. A reference to that past exodus, even from Hosea chapter 1, would have sparked remembrances of this promise to reconstitute Israel. By the way, you, you, you may not know this, but in these days, in the first century, there was no such thing as chapters and verses. There wasn't such a thing as quoting a verse of Scripture. You simply quoted words out of the Scripture, and in most cases, the people would have had to make their own determination about how much of the context is being referred to. And so he just quotes this passage of Scripture, probably with the understanding that the entire message is there being referenced. And it would have been, no doubt, uh, something that drew Matthew's attention, particularly because Hosea uses the word son. 
He compares, his, he compares God's deep love for Israel, calling them out of Egypt the first time, to the love that a father has for a son. And once again, Hosea didn't invent that idea. It actually was part of the original message of Moses, Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go so that he may serve me. And if you refuse, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So this whole idea about sonship and the exodus is bound up in the, in the whole notion of the Passover and the, and the slaughter of the firstborn and all of that stuff is just embedded in the Old Testament understanding of all this. God wanted to establish his love for Israel like a son and he uses it as the reason why he's going to rescue them. And so Hosea picks up on that image. He's the only prophet to take up the language of sonship as it relates to this. And he recalls how God's original love of Israel as a child, as a son, was so tender. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, Matthew takes all of that and extends it to Jesus Christ. He uses the word son probably to make it more explicit. Here was the first one. This is the first son of the new generation. Here's the prototypical Jew. He was the embodiment of everything that God was going to do. You remember in Hosea chapter 1, when God said that he was going to do this work, Hosea 1, verses 10 through 11, one of the things that he said is he's going to gather Israel, and he's going to gather Judah, and he's going to bring them together, and one leader would lead them. Well, here's the leader. He was the perfection of the idea of God's son. He was the obedient son that contrasted all the disobedient Israelites throughout all the ages. It was him through which God was going to make all of Israel obedient one day. He was the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8, 28 says, Those who, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, Jesus was the beginning of this new era. And Matthew, what he's saying to us is that Jesus was going to be if you will, the first Jew that God brings back under this new pledge. He was the first one who had been scattered, although not by his own personal guilt, but because of the consequences of Israel's situation, because of the dictatorship of Herod, because of the curses and the judgment that Israel was under. He himself was caught up in the chaos and scattered among the nations. But now he would be brought back as a part of God's promise and of course, as we will learn, that work of redemption and restoration which begins in Jesus Christ will not fully be completed until his second coming. But as sure as God loved Israel to begin with, 
He loved Israel to the end, and he loved Jesus Christ. This was what every Jew was supposed to be. This was what Israel was supposed to be. And so this was the beginning of God's work in the Exodus that he'll ultimately fulfill and bring to completion when he comes again. A complete work, a complete reconstitution, a renewed Israel, a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30 when God circumcises their hearts, puts his law within them, makes them obedient. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the demonstration of that. Jesus is the demonstration of that. In a sense, uh, he is bringing it to its completion. This is the work of the Messiah. And it includes every Jew who will eventually repent and believe. But guess what? It also includes every person, every non-Jew, every Gentile who repents and believes. You may not be a member of the nation Israel. You may not have been one of those ones who chases after idols, but you have your own unfaithfulness. You have your own waywardness. You are a gomer. You've turned away from the Lord You've gone after other things, other gods. But the Lord sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, who came in order to establish a new people of God. He was the perfect Son of God. And He came, and by His death on the cross, He wipes away all of your guilt and your shame and your sin. And by the power of His Holy Spirit, He can make you a child of God. That's the message that Matthew's telling you. That's the way that Jesus fulfills everything the Old Testament promises. Everything that God offers is found in Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you would like to be a child of God. We encourage you to respond. God simply asks you this. He asks you to confess the fact that you are guilty before him and worthy of his wrath. But at the same time, confess Jesus as Lord and ask him to be the savior of your life. Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be reconciled to God. You can be a part of his new kingdom. You can experience all of that when he comes again. Father, we're grateful for the message that comes to us of redemption. We're thankful for your precious love, unfailing and unwavering, expressed as it is toward Israel and magnanimous to include us as well. How grateful we are for our Savior, the obedient Son of God, the one with whom you are well pleased. May you, may you in every way make us like him. We pray in Christ's name, amen.